Welcome to the History of California podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Maddox. Today we have our third and final episode on Galen Clark. While it is sad to say goodbye to our friend, the guardian of Yosemite, I am excited to move on to new topics. Without further introduction, let's go ahead and conclude his story. We pick up our story as Clark is being replaced as the guardian of Yosemite. One of the characters from earlier in our narrative, the journalist James Hutchings, who along with his wife, Elvira, operated the Upper Hotel, which they acquired in the 1860s, was suddenly appointed as the guardian of Yosemite, replacing Clark. How this all transpired is complicated, but to cut the story short, the Yosemite board was termed out and replaced by a new board that was friendly to Hutchings, which led to his appointment replacing the guardian who has served this entire time. Later in the spring of 1881, the Yosemite commissioners held a meeting to essentially decide to get out of Galen's way. Even though he wasn't given the back salary that he earned, he would be given a lease in Yosemite Valley at $1 a year as a form of compensation. He would need to work to earn some money, so he offered his nine-seater buggy for tourists. Galen, now relieved of his duties as guardian, made himself busy that year, serving as a judge in Mariposa, as well as on a Yosemite board, and even petitioning for a future burial site for himself in the park, preparing that area by transplanting some sequoias and digging a well so he could water those trees. Hutchings' term as Yosemite's guardian did not last long. He did indeed accomplish some good things, working on carriage roads and buying out older toll roads to decrease friction in getting people to the park. Hutchings, though, would be quickly replaced by Walter E. Dennison and soon after that, Mark L. McCord, both of whom would allow corruption and misuse to become a feature of the park. It took some exposés by an artist-slash-journalist in the vein of those muckrackers in this period to reveal what was happening to the treasured landscape, enough to cause a backlash against the Yosemite commissioners. Ultimately, Clark was reappointed as the guardian of Yosemite as the Fuhrer had reached such a pitch that the appeasement of public anger was the only way to stem the bleeding in people's loss of faith and trust in the Yosemite commissioners. Clark was reestablished the year before Yosemite would become a national park in 1890. Following a series of persuasive articles written by John Muir, Congress took action to create the National Park in California, which did not include all the grant land operated by the state, but did bring in new supports and structures to the area. With its new status as a national park, Clark now had a U.S. Army cavalry to support the administration of the said park. In addition, Muir set to work in creating the Sierra Club as a way to preserve the broader wilderness of the Sierra Nevadas. While Clark's name was not one of the charter members of the Sierra Club, he certainly was a feature of the landscape of conservation in California. Meanwhile, Clark was enjoying himself in the park, climbing rocks, swimming in rivers, touring visitors around the valley, and being essentially Mr. Yosemite. One thing was starting to bother him, however, and that was the harsh winters. If you, you the listener, take a moment to go look at Yosemite's webcam right now in late January, you may observe some snow. 
Yosemite became quite cold for Clark's old bones, and he decided he needed a snowbird-style destination to avoid the harsh, cold winters of Yosemite. Clark was drawn to Santa Barbara, not only for the temperate climate, but also for the spiritualist movement that was happening in a town called Summerland, just south of Santa Barbara. Remember that Clark had married a fortune teller, and he had in fact become deeply interested in the occult. Clark built a large house in Summerland where he began to stockpile Yosemite trinkets and pieces of nature, which naturally attracted neighbor kids who were interested in the old man who lived off their street who had cool stuff to look at and lots of interesting stories to tell. Clark absolutely relished holding court on his front porch, and this may, and this is just speculation, have been the impetus to go east and meet some of his grandchildren. He had eight of them, to be precise, children of Mary Ann Clark Regan and John T. Regan. Clark secured for himself a two-month leave of duty as guardian of Yosemite and set out east, stopping first in Yellowstone National Park, before going on to the World's Columbian Ex Exposition in Chicago, and then extended stays with his family on the East Coast. Now, the 1890s brought some important improvements to Yosemite National Park. Some of these were detailed in a report that was delivered by Galen to the commissioners after he returned from the East. And in the 1890s, a telephone wire, the first one, was strung from Sonora to the Valley. However, electricity would ultimately have to wait another decade or so. The 1890s also brought the final retirement of Clark. Turning 82 in 1890, Clark saw that the time needed for managing a national park was coming to an end, and put his retirement notice to the commission, who sadly accepted it. Clark spent the years after retirement living in Summerland, tending to his garden, taking walks with his cane along the beach, reading books in his local library branch, and ultimately missing Yosemite. As soon as the weather permitted, Clark would venture back to the park, where he would be seen tending the plant life around his gravesite or writing at a table near the general store. He became something of a valley celebrity and gladly took the time to answer questions or converse with tourists on whatever was helpful. We don't know if he met Teddy Roosevelt when Roosevelt came to visit the National Park with John Muir in 1903, but it seems likely. We can only imagine what the conversation might have been like. One person he did meet that set Clark on a writing path was Charles H. Burnett, who was a wealthy businessman that came to Yosemite, like Clark, because of health issues. Burnett, impressed by Clark, encouraged him to put down in writing some of his encyclopedic knowledge, which he did, but with meager results. All three of the books did not include many of the interesting insights that we would want. I will say that in a few minutes, I'm going to read to you all, the listeners, a few selections that I enjoyed from my reading of those books, which I did in fact read, or perhaps more accurately, skimmed. The last years of Clark's life were filled with traveling around California, visiting individuals important to him, and working on his books. Clark published his last book in 1910 on Yosemite Valley, including a section on his theory of its formation that we talked about before. He took a train to Redondo Beach to present his finished manuscript to Mr. Burnett for publication. While he was touring a brand new bathhouse in the area, according to his sister, he acquired an illness, a severe cold. After ambling around Southern California for a few weeks, including a trip to South Pasadena, 
Clark journeyed to Oakland, where his sister would take care of him, as he was still dealing with this persistent cold. After arriving, four days before his 96th birthday, Clark laid down to take a well-needed nap, and never woke up. He died at the age of 95 at his sister's house in Oakland, California. Following his death, most of the major newspapers pinned hagiographic eulogies of the man, focusing on his achievements and not his business failures, arguing that Clark's death was a major milestone in California history. One of his friends, Daniel Foley, said that Clark's death was going to leave a major void in the Yosemite and Big Tree affairs, which undoubtedly was true. Soon after his death, his remains were whisked away to Yosemite to be buried. Those attending the funeral placed wreaths and blossoms on the coffin. As they lowered his casket into the valley floor, his mourners could hear Yosemite Falls in the background resounding into the canyon. Now before we close up this final episode on Galen Clark, I thought it might be fruitful to hear some of Clark's own words. There are two sections that stood out to me from the books that I read. First, I'm going to read the prologue from his book on the big trees of California, and then we will move on to his lovely advice to campers and tourists visiting Yosemite. And last but not least, I'm going to read an article written by Mark Boardman that appeared in True West magazine that brings together the story and the legacy of Clark in the history of the West and California. But to start, The Big Trees of California, published in 1907 by Galen Clark. Here is the prologue. Quote, I have been to the woods. I have trod the green dell, and the spirit of beauty was there. I saw her white form in the snowdrop's white bell. I heard her soft voice in the air. She danced in the aspen, she sighed in the gale. She wept in the shower, she blushed in the veil. Her mantle was thrown over the misty brake. Her splendor shone in the sparkling lake. I felt her breath in the breezes of even. Her robe floated over the blue vault of heaven. Wherever I roved over vale, wood, or hill, the spirit of beauty would follow me still. Not a wild briar rose, its fragrance breathed. Not an elm, its clustering foliage wreathed. Not a violet opened its eyes of blue. Not a plant or flower in the valley grew. Not an ivy caressing the rock in the wall, but the spirit of beauty was over them all. Now, uh, his book published in 1910, called The Yosemite Valley, uh, some advice for people visiting the park. Quote, Secure stage seats in advance. Take only hand luggage unless for a protracted visit. For a short trip, an outing suit or and two or three waists with a change of evening wear will be found sufficient. The free baggage allowance on the stage lines is 50 pounds. Men will find flannel or negligee shirts the most comfortable. In April, May, and June, wear warm clothing and take heavy wraps. In July, August, and September, wear medium clothing with light wraps. In October and November, wear warm clothing with heavy wraps. The nights are cool at all seasons. Dusters are always advisable, and ladies should provide some light head covering to protect the hair from dust. Sunbonnets are frequently worn. Short skirts are most convenient. Divided skirts are proper for trail trips, as ladies are required to ride astride. Heavy denim for skirts and bloomers is very satisfactory. Such skirts can be hired in the valley. Waists of soft material and neutral shades are appropriate. Avoid white. 
Something absolutely soft for neckwear will be found, a great comfort by both men and women. Leggings, stout, comfortable shoes, and heavy, loose gloves will be found serviceable. A soft felt hat is preferable to straw. One that will shade the eyes is best. A cloth traveling cap is the worst thing to wear. Smoked glasses will sometimes save the wearer a headache. Except in March, April, May, November, and December, an umbrella is apt to be a useless encumbrance. If the skin is sensitive and one wishes to avoid painful sunburn, the use of a pure cream and soft cloth is preferable to water and far more efficacious. A week is the shortest time that should be allowed for a trip to Yosemite. Two weeks are better. The grandeur of the valley cannot be fully appreciated in a few days. On walking trips, let the clothing be so loose so as not to be binding on any part of the body. A light, strong staff, four or five feet in length, will be much service both in going up and going down the trails. In starting on the upgrade, don't hurry. Go slowly. Stop often for a minute or two. Don't talk while walking. Keep your mouth shut and breathe through your nose. Talk all you wish while stopping for a short rest. Your lungs will soon get into a more expansive condition and you can increase the distance between resting spells and will arrive at your destination in good condition to enjoy the magnificent views. Those not accustomed to staging or mountain climbing should make some allowance in their itineraries for rest. Many visitors spoil their pleasure by getting too tired. Take a little more money than you think you will need. You may want to prolong your stay. Hunting or the possessions of firearms is not permitted in Yosemite National Park. Fishing is allowed, and in June and July, an expert angler is likely to be well rewarded. Rods and tackle may be hired in the valley. There is no hardship, risk, or danger in any part of the Yosemite trip. Many old people and children visit the valley without difficulty. A knowledge of horsemanship is not needed for going on the trails. The most timid people make the trips with enjoyment. Some of the finest views can only be attained this way. There's laundry in the valley. There's a barbershop. There's a post office, telegraph, and express. There's a general store and places for sales of photographs, curios, and Indian work. Treat the Indians with courtesy and consideration if you expect similar treatment from them. Do not expect them to pose to, for you for nothing. They are asked to do it hundreds of times every summer and are entitled to payment for their trouble. Kodak films and plates can be obtained in the valley. Developing and printing are done in the valley. Take your camera. End quote. All right. Last but not least, the article that appeared in True West Magazine by Mark Boardman titled A Loser and His Park. Quote, Galen Clark was, for want of a better term, a loser. Yet all of his trials and tribulations ended up giving this country a great national treasure, Yosemite National Park. In 1853, Clark had long ago left his native Canada, moving through Missouri and other American locales. He was 39, widowed, and had farmed out his five kids to relatives and gone through multiple bad business. He was broke and suffering from consumption, also known as tuberculosis, and the doctors had given him six months to live. He moved to the mountains of California in what became Mariposa County. As his health improved, he explored the area, learning its secrets, seeing what only the Indians had before him. One discovery was the Mariposa Grove of giant sequoia trees, an imposing landmark then as it is now. Three years past his projected death date, 
Clark wrote about the area. He pushed lawmakers to protect it from development and proclaim its treasures to one and all. His efforts picked up steam, and in 1864, President Abraham Lincoln signed legislation that granted the Grove and Yosemite Valley as California's first state park. Clark benefited from that decision. In 1866, park overseers named him the official guardian of Yosemite, in effect becoming the nation's first park ranger. In that role, which he held for 22 years, he protected the area, quite a job for just one man. He prevented any illegal cutting of timber or constructions of buildings, kept the peace with the Indians and settlers, and provided guided tours. By the late 1880s, naturalist John Muir was convinced that only federal government could truly protect the area. With Clark's help, Muir's campaign led President Benjamin Harrison signing into law on October 1, 1890, Yosemite as the third national park. It included not just the valley and the Sequoia Grove, but also the surrounding mountains and forests. The park allowed Clark to run a hotel and charge a fee as a guide, but he had not become a better businessman. Clark was constantly in debt. In the last decade of his life, he wrote three books on the park to pay his bills. While the books are informative, Clark left out one important character, himself. In his final years, Clark lived at the Summerland Spiritualist Colony near Santa Barbara, where his house still stands. He also paid visits to his daughter in Oakland, where he died, nearly 96, on March 24, 1910. What a legacy he left the nation. More than 1,100 square miles of mountains, spectacular cliffs, waterfalls, and giant trees, an incredible array of flora and fauna. Clark may have been a business failure, but Yosemite National Park is an incredible measure of success. We'll see you next time.